So Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7 this morning. Um, Another kind of maybe uh, not typical uh, Christmas uh, passage, but I think you're going to see that it is going to help us uh, see a new aspect, a new angle on the incarnation this morning that's super uh, important for us as followers of Christ. So uh, that's where we're going to dig in. Well, with Christmas quickly approaching, um, Timmy decided that he needed to enlist some help to make sure that he got the bike that he so desperately wanted for Christmas. And so one night he uh, went into his room and he knelt down beside his bed and he started to pray. And he said, uh, dear Jesus, I've been good now for six months. And then he kind of paused and he shook his head and started over. He said, well, well dear Jesus, I- I've been good for three months. And then he paused again. He's like, well, that's not, that's, that's not going to work either. And so he said, well, I've been good for at least two weeks, Jesus. And then he stopped, and he was frustrated, and he knew that wasn't true. And so, so he got up, and he, and he went into the living room uh, to the family's nativity scene, and he grabbed the, the statue of Mary, and he takes it back into his room, and he wraps her up real tight, and he puts her in the bottom drawer of his dresser. And he goes back, and he kneels down beside his bed again, and he says, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, Now, maybe Timmy's prayer was a little misguided, okay? But he understood something instinctively there, that family matters, right? We feel that even a little bit more at the holidays, right? That family matters. Like, we all have this desire in us to have a close, loving family relationship, especially around the holidays. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good desire, and it comes from the Lord, because that's God's desire, right? that he wants to have a loving, close family relationship with all of his children. And that is the reason, that's one of the reasons that the incarnation is so important. That's the reason that God sent his son, is because he wanted to bring us into his family to have that type of relationship with him. And that's what we're going to look at today from Galatians chapter 4, that God came down to adopt us into his family. God came down to adopt us into his family. So look with me at verse 4 there in Galatians chapter 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First thing we see in this passage this morning is this. Number one, God sent his son. Now it starts with this phrase there. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, which is an interesting phrase. And it basically just means that it was God's perfect timing. When Jesus was born, when he, was, when he came to earth, this was God's perfect timing. That's what that means. And, and there's lots of reasons why it was the perfect timing. Some people want to point to some historical reasons, right? Like this was the time of, of, of Roman peace kind of pervading that area in the world, and the road system was in place, and they had this kind of universal language of Greek. And so like it was, it was a, like an ideal time historically. And all those things are fine and true, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's pointing to divine reasons why this was the perfect time. 
And so I want to kind of just list for you kind of six things here that led up to this being the perfect time, God's perfect time and God's perfect plan for Jesus to come at this point. And it starts all the way back at the beginning with God preparing the way. That from the very beginning of creation, God was already preparing the way for this to happen. When Adam and Eve sinned, we found out a couple weeks ago that he preached the first gospel to them on the heels of that. And from that moment, he already had a plan in place that he was preparing to lead up to this moment. He went from the first gospel to then the chosen family of choosing Abraham to be that family in which he would bring forth his plan. That led to Moses and the the law and the sacrificial system to demonstrate how they could be saved from their sins by the God who called them to himself. And then eventually through King David and the eternal kingdom that he was setting up that would flow from his line. God had a plan that he was preparing all along the way. And then from there we see that he was also providing the law. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me back up. In preparing the way from the moment of the fall, God was doing that to reveal to us his sovereignty. Part of this plan, part of this, this lead up is him showing us who he is. And so in preparing the way, he's showing us his sovereignty. And then he brings Moses along and he gives us the law, the Ten Commandments, and the other laws to Israel, showing them like, hey, if you want to have a relationship with a holy God, this is what it requires. Like, this is what you have to do. This is who you have to be if you want to have a relationship with a holy God. And through that law, he revealed to them not only what they had to do, but how they were falling short of that. And he revealed to them their sin, and more importantly, his righteousness. From the law, he moves on then to patient endurance. All throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we see over and over again disobedience and disobedience, rebellion, rebellion, turning from God. And through all of that, he patiently endures, calling them back to himself, loving him, showing them his plan. He waited for them to repent because the Bible tells us that God does not wish that any should perish. And through his waiting, he portrayed to us his mercy towards those who fall short. Then it led into what we call the painful exile, where there came a point where God said, okay, the, the, the rebellion is too much, the disobedience is too high, it's now time for some discipline. And he sends his people off into painful consequences of their rebellion, just as a loving father disciplines his children. God disciplined the children of Israel to show them his love for them that he would not allow them to continue down this path of rebellion. And then we move into the era of prophecies fulfilled. Now, he'd been making prophecies and promises all the way from the beginning, but they kind of culminate here in these last days where he's saying, I'm going to fulfill all these things from Abraham's promised offspring to David's eternal throne to the blessing of all the nations. All the promises, all the prophecies are going to come true in the birth of this baby boy. He was bringing it all to perfect fulfillment to show us his faithfulness. That what he said he would do, he would do. And then it culminates here with the personal incarnation of Christ. This was God's response to 400 years of silence. There were 400 years where God just stopped talking to his people, stopped talking to the world, stopped revealing himself leading up to this point where he brought his son to come 
and the Messiah to come to earth and fulfill the plan that he'd been preparing all along. And when the Messiah came, he came not to destroy us as we deserved, but rather to save us. He came to show us most of all God's grace and how much we needed him. So when Paul says in the fullness of time, that's a, bit, that's a small statement for a big lead up to this revelation that God sent his son. God sent his son in the perfect timing to be the perfect sacrifice. Those first two words are important. It says that God sent. In other words, this wasn't by accident. This wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't like Jesus just decided one day, hey, I'm going to go to earth. No, God had a plan. He sent Jesus intentionally on a mission to earth, to us. We see this all throughout the book of John. A couple of verses for you here. John 12, 49. Jesus is speaking. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. That God told me to do this. He told me what to say. Like, this is is not just me doing my own thing here. The Father said, this is how it's going to be. John 17, 3, again, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How are they going to know eternal life? They're going to know it through Christ that was sent by the Father. That same author, John, wrote in a couple other books later on, a couple letters, 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says it like this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation. It's another word for payment, to be the payment for our sins. So God sent his son. Now the the claim here that Jesus is God's son tells us that he is the second member of the Trinity. He is the son. He is 100% God. As God's son, he is 100% God, meaning that he was as perfect as God was. His perfection was there. He was completely sinless. And because he was sinless, him coming to earth makes his sacrifice of infinite worth. You understand that there is not one other being in all of creation, in all of time and space, that could offer the sacrifice necessary to cover the sins of mankind. Only Jesus. Only God himself, in his perfection, in his sinlessness, could cover what needed to be covered. And so he came as this perfect sacrifice, but it says then he was born of a woman. So now in the perfect timing, the perfect sacrifice becomes the perfect substitute. Because you see, when he came as Jesus of Nazareth, he was still 100% God, but he also now was 100% man. Human in the flesh, just like those that he came to save. This was the only way that he could take man's penalty for sin. It had to be a man for a man. More importantly, a sinless man for sinful man. That's how the exchange had to look. And this is why God sent his son to save all of his other sons from their sins. 
if you, um, if you ever watch military movies, there's kind of, almost every one of them has like this, the same kind of theme or the same idea that hits somewhere in the movie, and, and it's, it's not made up, it's, it's real, and it's no man left behind. We've all heard that before, right? Like no man left behind, and then there's always inevitably one soldier gets separated from the rest of the group, and they're going to be killed or captured or whatever, and they don't just leave them there. They don't just cut their losses and be like, all right, sorry, we're, we're heading on. The whole team, the whole group, whoever it is, they go back to rescue him. They risk all of their lives to rescue his life. And that's exactly what God did here. But instead of sending a whole team back to rescue one guy, he sent one son, his only son, to come back and rescue all of his sons and daughters. Son works well in the language of the passage here. But it's all of us, right? all of his children. Jesus explained it like this in Luke 15. He told this story. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus tells us that God rejoices over every single one of His children that is saved and brought back to Him. Every single one. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He was willing to give His Son. God sent His only Son because He was our only chance at rescue. God sent His only Son because He was our only chance at rescue. So Paul starts the passage like that. God sent His Son, but then he also tells us He sent His Son to redeem His sons. To redeem His sons. He says that, yes, He was born of woman, but then it says that He was born under the law. Now that phrase, born under the law, is actually a description for all humans. Okay? All people on the earth are born under God's rule, under God's reign, and therefore are subject to God's laws. Much like those of us who were born in the United States and born as citizens of the United States, we are automatically subject to the rules and the laws and the government of the United States. That's how it works the same way. But God, His law is much higher and much greater than any other and much more demanding of us. And unlike breaking most of the laws of this land and this country, breaking any one of God's laws always comes with the same punishment. Death. That's all there is before a holy God. But Jesus, although he was born under the law, like us, he also was not like us. He was born under the law, but then he perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled the law that we never could. He was completely sinless before God, securing the perfect righteousness that we could not. That's why Paul says he was born under the law, but he came to redeem those under the law. Again, that's us, that's all humans. 
We're all guilty of breaking God's law. We owe a debt for our sin that we cannot pay. And we all deserve God's just wrath for our sin. And yet, Jesus came to redeem us. Now, we use that word redeem a lot around the church world. But, but I want to just make sure we know exactly what we're talking about here. So here's a definition for the word redeem. Okay? Regain possession through payment. Redeem means to regain possession of something through a payment. Jesus did that. He came and he paid the price for our sin to redeem us, to gain us back into God's family, to bring us back to him. His perfect life, his perfect sacrifice restored the relationship with God through Christ. In theological terms, we call this imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness, which just means that that God has gifted us the righteousness of Christ because he died in our place for our sins on the cross. The righteousness that we could never earn or get ourselves, God gifted it to us through Jesus if we have faith in him. He says, so, he came to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's two little words in that sentence that are so important. So that, right? Going, again, got, got to look at the grammar. This is a connection. He's saying this is a, a cause and effect relationship here. Christ came and paid for our sins and he came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption. Adoption means that you move out of one family and you move into a different family, right? And for us, we were all born in one family. You know, some of you aren't going to like this. I'm just going to tell you right now. You might want to like pull in your toes for a second here because we were all born into Satan's family. That sounds weird. And it sounds, no. <laughs> but it's true. We were born as Satan's children, and yet God wants to adopt us as his children. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's true. Now, he was talking here specifically to some Jewish leaders at the moment, but that statement equally applies to all of us who were born and walk in sin prior to Jesus Christ. We were following Satan. We were following our father and his sinful desires in this dark world. But God came. God came to adopt us as his sons and daughters. He came to change our family. To put us in a new family. And because of Christ, he no longer sees us as enemies. God doesn't look down and see us on, on the wrong side. He sees us as his perfect children through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us and adopted us into his family if we have repented of our sins and put our faith in him. Now, to illustrate this, Paul actually gives us an illustration right here in the scripture. It's actually before the verses that I read already. So let's go back to verse 1 of the chapter. He starts with the illustration in verse 1. 
He says this, I mean, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what Paul's saying here is like, listen, when you're a child, until the child hits adult age, they are under the authority and the control of someone, right? Of a parent, of a guardian, of a who, like, they are under the control of someone, something. Likewise, Paul says, hey, before Jesus came, before you put your faith in Jesus, you are under the authority and control of another. He calls it here the elementary principles of the world. And he says, not only are you under the control of it, you are enslaved to it. If we look deeper into Galatians, we find out that those elementary principles he's describing are the, the world's religious systems. Not Christianity, the other world religious systems. Specifically, he, he would have been talking about like Judaism, would have been common for his audience here. And the, the, the belief that they had to keep the law and do all the stuff to earn their way to God. Or in the Greek or Roman system of gods. Again, you always had to do something to appease the gods and hopefully earn their favor so that they would accept you. And we see the same thing in our world today, right? Every other religion except for Christianity says you have to do X, Y, and Z to earn your place with God. Every single one without fail. And, God's, and Paul says, before Jesus, you were enslaved to that type of thinking. You were enslaved to the reality that you had to earn your way with God. But the problem is, that never works. Right? There, aren't, there aren't enough good works that we can do. We can never be good enough to match God. We can never be good enough to match His perfection, to match His holiness. We can never get there. You can try to climb that mountain all day, and it's not going to happen. Not on your own. We needed someone else to be righteous for us, because we couldn't be righteous for ourselves. We need someone to redeem us when we couldn't redeem ourselves, and that is what Jesus came to do. God sent his son to redeem us when we could not redeem ourselves. So God sent his son to redeem his sons, and then lastly we see to secure his sons. I love this part. Look at verse 6. It said, because of all this, God has sent the spirit of his son. Now, here's how it works. When we turn from our sin... And we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if, if you're here today and, and maybe this is new to you, maybe you're still pondering Jesus, you're still looking into Christianity, like, man, I, I just want to encourage you today, like, Jesus did this for you too. All you have to do is turn away from your sin, repent of your sin, and put your faith in Jesus. And everything we're talking about today, it's yours. And right here, Paul says if we turn from our sin, if we put our faith in Jesus to save us and to redeem us, that God sends us a gift. We love gifts at Christmas, right? God, God sends us a gift, and he sends us the gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm that we are now one of his children. It's a confirmation. He says he has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. So he doesn't just come to us. 
He comes to live inside us forever. That is a phenomenal gift. And the Holy Spirit comes and He starts to come inside and He starts to change us. He starts to change our hearts. He starts to change our desires and our affections. Paul says elsewhere that the Spirit is like our family seal. Let me read you these verses from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Because now we're part of the family. We're sealed and we're guaranteed an inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee that, hey, we're in the family. We're we're in. And it says that, Paul says back in Galatians, that when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us, that He teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, in the Greek there, that's a very, very personal address. Right? You would only use that kind of phrase to your Father. And here, the Spirit is teaching us to turn away from loving our sins and loving other things and to give our love to our new Father. Father God. And He confirms that we are part of a new family that we've been adopted in. He goes on, he says, so you are no longer a slave. Remember he said we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. He says, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to religion. You're no longer a slave to the works that you thought you had to do or the things of this world. But now you are a son and an heir through God. Because of Jesus, we can all be heirs of God. Full sons and daughters with full rights of the inheritance. Now, there's some, there's some context here for the early church that's important for us to really grasp the fullness of this. In the Roman culture, when you had children and they grew, started to grow up, if you felt like they were not worthy of your family or you felt like they weren't carrying weight or they weren't going to be wise with whatever, you could disown them, right? You could cut them out of the family. They get nothing, no inheritance, no part of the family business, whatever. Like, you could, you could kick them out, all right? Which was a big deal back then because the way you made a living was the trade that you got passed down from your parents. The difference was if you adopted a child into your family, because of that legal transaction, you could never again disown them or put them out. Once they were adopted in, it was permanent forever. And God's saying, hey, I'm adopting you into my family. This was a permanent transaction and because of that we become his heirs we become heirs to eternal life with him and our future is totally secure in his family as some of you know um our our youngest daughter ava is adopted we were so blessed by the lord to get to be to be called to adoption to get to be a part of that process and um to adopt her into our family, and it was really, we actually got to adopt her from birth, so we had to go to the hospital the day she was born, and see her, and, and, and pick her up, and bring her home with us, and from the moment that we saw her, we loved her, like, like, from the very first moment we took her, we put our eyes on her, like, she was, in our, in our hearts, in our minds, she was ours, and we began to love her as our daughter, and care for her, and treat her like one, and, and from day one, my name 
to her was daddy, father, from day one. But, if you, depending on what you know or don't know about the adoption process, she technically was not our daughter. Not yet. Because most states have some type of law that gives the, the birth parents so many days or weeks or sometimes even months to come back and claim parental rights in case they change their minds about the adoption. And so we had to wait for a number of weeks until finally that time passed, and then they set a court date where you go in with your family and meet the judge and to, to make it official. In adoptive families, they call this the gotcha day. Okay? And so I got a picture here of our gotcha day. This is our whole family. We went in, we sat with the judge and, and got to adopt Ava. And in that moment, it's a very special day for adoptive families, but it's also a legal day. It's not just emotional. It's not just for show. There's a legal thing that happens. We went in, we had to sign a paper. The judge signed, we signed, saying that she was going to be our daughter. And with those signatures, we sealed that adoption. That made it permanent forever. Now her position in our family was secure. And that is what God does with us as well. He calls us to himself. He loves us. He cares for us. He, he showers us with his grace so that we will turn to him. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to seal us and to change our hearts so that we will love him and be in his family forever. Done. The Spirit guarantees God's adoption of us is forever totally secure. And so God sent his son to secure us as members of his family forever. God sent his son to redeem his sons and to secure his sons. Because God came down to adopt us into his family. He did it all. Do you understand what we just went through? We just, like, there was nothing in that scenario that you had to do. God came and he did it all. He sent his only son to rescue us. He sacrificed his perfect son to redeem us. And then he secured us as his very own children forever. All we have to do is turn from our sin and put our faith in him. We just have to receive the gift through faith. And then we become children of the Almighty God. There is no greater gift that you could receive this Christmas. As we started at the beginning, family matters. And I'm not talking about just earthly families. They matter too. But, but family matters. Don't miss out on the most important family that you can be a part of this Christmas. Believe in Jesus. Worship him as God and Savior and become part of the family. And if you're already part of the family, praise the Lord. Don't stop worshiping. Right? Let's believe afresh and let's worship the Lord for all that he's done for us this morning. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father,